Good morning. Our reading this morning comes from Exodus 12 and Revelation 5. From Exodus, the Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, tell all the congregation of Israel that on the 10th day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for each household. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the 14th day of the month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of their houses in which they eat it. They shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on the fire with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. They shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted, its head with its legs and its inner parts. And you shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until the morning you shall burn. In this manner you shall eat it, with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. And you shall eat it in haste. It's the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt on that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And on that night, all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. The day shall be for you a memorial day. And you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations. As a statute forever, you shall keep it as a feast. And from Revelation 5. Then I saw the right hand of him who was seated on the throne, a scroll written within and on the back and sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered, so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures among the elders, I saw a lamb standing, as though it had been slain, with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals for you were slain and by your blood, you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Rain, thanks so much for reading that. And good morning, y'all. My name is John Trapp. Uh, 
I am the campus minister for a ministry called RUF at the University of Texas. RUF is a campus ministry of our denomination, the PCA. And so I'm an ordained minister sent by the PCA to the college campus. And I'm really thankful for this church, for the way that you have supported me and prayed for me and my family, for the way that you've supported our students and loved the RUF students who are here. Uh, I'm just thankful for y'all. And it's really good to be with you this morning and to open up God's word with you. We're in the book of Exodus. We're continuing our series through Exodus. And one of the things that I want you to see as we're looking at this passage, and I think you've probably seen this through the other texts that we've studied, is that in the book of Exodus, you have these themes that are reverberating out throughout the rest of the scripture. That there's really echoes of Exodus all throughout the Bible. And I think we're going to see that this morning with with what happens when God looks at something and says, enough is enough. And that's something that we see all throughout scriptures. So uh, before we dive into that, let me pray for us and um, we'll get started. Father, I thank you that we can gather here today and we pray now that the words of my mouth and that the meditations of all of our hearts would be holy and pleasing to you, our rock and our redeemer. We love you and thank you for this time now. And we ask that you would be with us. In Jesus' name, amen. So I grew up as the youngest kid in my family. And because of that, I kind of liked to be annoying. Maybe it was just my personality, but maybe it was just because I was the youngest. And that was the role that I was happy to play. And I remember being on car rides with my family and sitting in the back seat and just, you know, or maybe poking my sister, kind of crossing the imaginary line that she had laid down through the back of the car. And there would always kind of be this moment where eventually my dad would look in the rearview mirror and say, okay, enough is enough. And the car would start to slow down and I would feel us pulling over. And kids, you know that feeling is the scariest feeling ever, right? And what I want to look at today is what happens when God says enough is enough. And I want you to see that this is actually a kind of a dynamic phrase that when God says enough is enough to evil in the world, that's going to be our first point. What happens when God says enough is enough to evil? But then secondly, what happens when God says enough is enough to a sacrifice? So first we're going to look at evil and then the sacrifice. So when God says enough is enough to evil. Now, you've, it's so easy for us to sterilize this passage because it, it's kind of a familiar story, the story of Exodus and to not think about what it must have been like for the people of Israel to have been in slavery for 400 years. Back-breaking slavery, bone-crushing slavery. And it was a slavery where they found themselves incredibly marginalized and persecuted. Pharaoh was having young Israelite mothers drown their newborn baby boys in the Nile River. He was having, he had work camps, people having to bring their own supplies that they had to provide and build bricks, make bricks and build structures. They were, and they finally, they would cry out for mercy to God. And God looks upon their suffering and the evil that's being done to them and he says enough is enough. And the interesting thing is God, as we see, we looked at this last week, and really throughout the story of Exodus, he is patient with Pharaoh. He is patient with the one who is 
plaguing his people. And he gives Pharaoh many, many chances to repent. And what we see is that Pharaoh's heart is hardened. And there's this interesting dynamic actually happening in some of the early, earlier chapters of trying to figure out, is, is it God who's hardening Pharaoh's heart towards repenting? Or is it Pharaoh who is hardening his heart by his free will? And let me, say, let me show you what I mean. So Exodus 11.10, it says, quote, God hardened Pharaoh's heart. But then in, chap, in passages like Exodus 8.32, a few plagues before, it says Pharaoh hardened his heart. And so which is it? Is God actively hardening Pharaoh's heart? Is Pharaoh free to choose? And the Bible kind of looks at that and says, yes. Like we have to hold this intention. And but one of the ways this made sense to me, I remember one of my pastors explained to me, John, if you wanted to actively grow weeds in your garden, what would you do? And I said, well, I guess nothing. He's exactly. Because what you, you don't have to teach your garden to grow weeds at all. It is, it is its natural tendency, and it will do that. And what we see in the book of Exodus is what the weeds of Pharaoh's heart are that naturally grow out. That... The, the weeds of Pharaoh's heart, genocide, work camps, physical assault, ripping families apart. And God is going to say enough is enough of that. And we see this in our own world. The weeds produced by our own world's heart. Poverty, human trafficking, abortion, racism, greed. And God would not be good if he didn't do something about it. If he didn't look at the plight of our world and the injustices in our world and say, enough is enough. And what we see here in this text is that there is going to be a divine judgment. And that, in fact, God is going to do something about it. And Miroslav Volf, in reflecting on this, he's a um, professor of theology at Yale. But you also have to know about what something you need to know about Volf is that he grew up in the Socialist Federal Republic of Yugoslavia. And Volf, in reflecting on God's judgment, says, believing in divine judgment actually makes me a peaceful person. It makes me able to be at peace. Listen to what he says. My thesis is that the practice of nonviolence requires a belief in divine vengeance. The practice of, of, the practice of nonviolence requires a belief in divine vengeance. He says, my thesis will be unpopular with man in the West, but imagine speaking to people as I have, and I'll give you the PG version here. Speaking to people as I have, whose cities and villages have been plundered, then burned and leveled to the ground, whose daughters and sisters have been violated, whose fathers and brothers have been killed before their very eyes. If God were not angry at injustice and deception and did not make a final end of violence, that God would not be worthy of our worship. And this is convicting. He says, it takes the quiet of a suburban home for the birth of the thesis that human nonviolence corresponds to God's refusal to judge. But in a land scorched, soaked in the blood of the innocent, that thesis will invariably die. 
what Wolf is getting at is that we need a God who can make things right. Our world is wrong. There is injustice filled. Our world is filled with it. So, what we need is, it's the same question in Revelation 5, the New Testament passage we read. And we know in Revelation 5 from um, the later chapters that this scroll that no one can open, it's the scroll of God's judgment. It's the scroll of how, that is going to tell us how God is going to make sense of all of the wrong things in this world. All of the violence, all of the injustice, all of the marginalization. God's going to make sense of it, but the only way we're going to know is he's going to open the scroll. But then we see in this passage that no one can open it. Not even sinless angels can open this scroll. And you see John's response? He begins to weep, which I think is a very appropriate response to not being able to make sense of everything that's wrong in this world. He begins to weep because if no one can open this scroll, then our suffering is meaningless. Then it can't be explained and there's nothing else to be, then nothing can be done about evil. But we see that there is one who is able. Jesus, who's described as the lion of the tribe of Judah, is, he is deigned worthy. And the rest, after he opens this, the rest of Revelation 5 is a big worship service breaks out because somebody can make sense of this. There is one who is worthy. And we see that God is going to enact judgment. He's going to make things right. Something is going to be done about all the weeds of, our, of this world's heart. But there's also a problem with that. Let me illustrate. So, Kids, maybe you've had this experience. I bet most everyone has had this experience, especially if you grew up in a church and have ever been around someone who's praying. You know, when, when we pray, everyone kind of closes their eyes, right? I remember being in Sunday school at First Presbyterian Church in Tuscumbia, first grade. We all bow our heads to pray. Our Sunday school teacher, Mrs. Jones, is leading us in our prayer. But I wanted to make sure everyone had their eyes closed. And so I didn't close my eyes. And I looked, and my best friend, Michael Marino, had his eyes open. And so after Mrs. Jones said, in Jesus' name, amen, I shot my hand up because I was a tattletale too. I was annoying and a tattletale. Wow. Um, anyway, <laughs> so I shot my hand up, and I said, Mrs. Jones, Michael Marino had his eyes open during the prayer. And then Mrs. Jones turned into a Jedi because she said, how did you know? that Michael Marino had his eyes open and she blew my mind because I saw her reasoning that the only reason that I can know is that if I too had my eyes open and am culpable and guilty like Michael Marino. <laughs> and the problem with God making things right in the world, with God uprooting all the weeds of this world's heart, is that something has to be done about us because we're part of the problem. Our world is filled with sinners like Pharaoh, and we are just like Pharaoh too. And if God's going to deal with the evil of this world, he's going to have to deal with us. He's going to have to deal with our deceit. He's going to have to deal with our apathy for people who are suffering. He's going to have to deal with our cheating. He's going to have to deal with our addictions that we lie to ourselves about and tell ourselves that they don't affect anyone else but ourselves. He's going to have to deal with that. 
He's going to have to deal with all the blights we bring upon this earth. He must do something if he is going to make things right. And you see this final plague that God is going to send upon Egypt, the tenth plague, where every house, every household in Egypt, Israelite or Egyptian, their oldest son is going to die. Because God is bringing judgment, and the judgment is not just coming for Egypt, it's coming for Israel too. And because of that, God institutes the Passover so that Israel might be spared. A sacrifice of a lamb or a goat, and, and the blood spread on the doorposts and on the lintel, kids, that's the part of the door, above the door, like the wooden frame right there. And I want you to think about what this is implying. Apart from that provision being made, you would be judged too. Exodus 12, 22 says, During Passover, none of you shall go out of the door of this house until the morning. What's implied there? What's implied is that you can't walk out of this provision or you will die. What's implied is that it's a, God's judgment is egalitarian, that we all deserve it. The, the, you know, the Israelites, would be, it'd be easy for them to think, like, those, those bad people over there deserve for God to do something to them. And man, isn't that the way that we think? How tribal is our country right now, that those people are the problem? And what God is implying here with giving this provision to them is like, no, 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 no. You're the problem too. You need provision too. Because I'm about to say enough is enough of the evil here. And that means you're in danger. So God gives them this provision. And what we see then is that it's not only the bad people, but it's that the religious people, they need covering too. They need the, the hope, the one hope, the blood of the lamb covering their entry. It was six years ago on a summer day in Henryville, Indiana, when Dominic and Reese Decker were playing outside in their yard. Suddenly their mother came out as the clouds darkened above them, and she told them that they had to come inside. There were tornadoes heading their way in Henryville, Indiana. So Dominic and Reese they ran into their house, into the basement, and waited, and then they heard the tornado coming, and their mother, Stephanie, gathered them under her arms, under her body, laid atop of them as their house came toppling down, toppling down on top of Stephanie as the furniture was blown into her body, a steel beam from their house collapsed on her legs, broke seven of her ribs, she lost both of her legs in the accident, and as the paramedics are coming to care for them, they come and they find Stephanie beaten, battered, bruised, and broken. And they find Reese and Dominic without a scratch on them, lying underneath their mother, who had covered them. And what you have to see in this story is that because God is going to say, enough is enough of the evil, a storm is coming. But he throws his body in front of them. 
so that they may be cared for and protected from the storm of God's wrath. Because, second point, what God does is he offers a sacrifice. And it's a sacrifice to which God can say, enough is enough. He says it about the, the lamb's blood here, that it is enough to spare Israel at Passover. And, you know, God didn't need any help um, separating who was who are the Israelites from who are the Egyptians. It's not like they, the blood was like some kind of symbol that, um, that made them special. It was, I mean, you see in earlier plagues that when God sends plagues, he's able to differentiate between Israelites and Egyptians. Like when, um, when, when a hailstorm comes, he's able to keep the hailstorm, or when, when, the, um, when boils and sickness appear upon people's skin, he's able to differentiate between Egyptians and Israelites so that only the Egyptians are affected. But when he is pouring out his final and divine wrath here in this 10th plague, what needs to happen is not a differentiation, but a covering, a protection. Someone has to step in the, in the place, or Israel is going to be judged too. And knowing that the judgment is coming, God makes a way to spare his people. How does this happen? Meredith Klein, he's an Old Testament theologian, uh, makes a really interesting observation, even in some of the Hebrew language of this. So this word Passah, which we, um, we, tra- we translate Passover, he, he contends that while that is a helpful translation, that another dynamic of this word Passah, it also means to hover over. So like in Genesis 1-2, where the Spirit of God is hovering over the waters of chaos, that's the same word, Passah. Or later in Exodus 14 when Egypt is about to storm back and recapture Israel before they're going uh, to cross the Red Sea. This cloud separates Israel and Egypt and protects them. It's God's cloud. It, Passah, it covers over them. It hovers over them. And so what Klein says, if, if we think about this, what, what we are seeing demonstrated in verse 13. Look at verse 13 again in Exodus 12. The blood shall be a sign for you and on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over. Or you could say, I will hover over you. And no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. This really helps make sense of a later verse, verse 23 in the same chapter. Um, because it, in, in that verse, it sounds like it's not just the Lord who is going through and, and doing the judgment. It's actually... Um, an emissary of God, the destroyer, who is going through and is going to enact God's judgment, this angel of destruction who is going to do what God has told him to do. So listen to verse 23. For the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians, and when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the doorposts, the Lord will passah the door. The Lord will hover over the door, pass over the door, and will not allow the destroyer to enter to the house to strike you. Here's what I want you to see with this. Here's what I think Klein is getting at. It's so helpful. That the one who is standing guard against the wrath of God is God himself. That the one who is standing guard at the door, who is covering over his people, who is making a provision so that they might be cared for, it is God himself standing against his wrath. And this is a foreshadowing of what Jesus does for us. Jesus stands guard against the destroyer, against the wrath that we deserve. 
on the night he was betrayed, Jesus, <laughs> this is so beautiful. Um, they're celebrating the Passover. This, this same meal in Exodus 12, Jesus and his disciples are going to now celebrate this meal together. And at the Passover meal, you would have bread and wine and lamb. We, we read it right there just a second ago. But I can imagine Peter and James and John and the disciples looking around when they're celebrating the Passover meal being like, who catered this? We have a terrible caterer. They've messed up the meal. We've just got bread and wine. And then Jesus picks up that bread and he says, this is my body. It's broken for you. Take it and eat it. That's what you did with the lamb. This is my blood poured out for you for the remission of sins. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. See, the reality is that the lamb was there. The lamb was at the Passover meal with the disciples. The lamb was there because Jesus is the one who has entered into the storm of this world and who covers over his people who do not deserve it. And he does it because of his grace. See, this is... This is what is so beautiful about the Christian religion. Is that we have a God who doesn't just stay far removed from our suffering. He doesn't tell us our suffering is fake or pretend or that we need to get our mind right so that we can figure it out. He doesn't, instead, he doesn't explain it away. He enters into it. Listen to what Nicholas Wasterstorff, who's a uh, philosophy professor at Harvard, he's been at Yale and Princeton, uh, listen to what he says in reflection on a God who suffers. He wrote this in a book called Lament for a Son, which he wrote after his 25-year-old son died in a mountain climbing accident. Walterstorff writes, To redeem our brokenness and lovelessness, the God who suffers with us did not strike some mighty blow of power, but sent his beloved son to suffer like us, and through his suffering to redeem us from suffering and evil. Listen to this. Instead of explaining our suffering, God shares it. It is why in Revelation 5, the one who is worthy to open the scrolls that make sense of our suffering, it's why Jesus is the one deigned, he is deigned worthy to open it because he's entered into it. Because when they say, behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, and everyone looks to see a lion, it's not a lion. Did you catch that? The elder says, look, it's the lion, and they look, and it is a lamb who appears as if he has been slain. He is the one who's worthy. He is the lion of the tribe of Judah, and he is the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. That's what his cousin said in John 1. We just read that. Behold, the lamb of God, he makes everything right. He takes away the sins of the world. He is the one who has made provision to cover over you, to protect you. And so God can look at that sacrifice and say, enough is enough. Do you get that? Because his only son entered into this world to die for you. That is enough. My best friend in college uh, is an artist now. He's a portrait artist. I want you to imagine that my friend David brings a portrait of me and gives it to me. I mean, he's, his portraits are amazing. Let's say he brings this big portrait of, of me and hands it over to me. I'm like, man, this is great. Wait one second. I want to do one thing real quick. I'll be right back. And I go and get my four-year-old's black magic marker, 
And I say, you know what, I've always wanted a mustache. I'm not really good at growing them, but I've always thought I'd look better with one. And I just start to color a mustache on. The, what, what would he say? He would say, stop, stop, what are you doing? It's finished. That, that work I gave you, it's finished. You know that's the last thing that Jesus says when he dies. That the work that he has done on the cross, the sacrifice that he has made, the payment that's been made for you is finished. Which, interestingly enough, is about the opposite thing of what Buddha says when he dies. Strive without ceasing. It's his dying words. Strive without ceasing versus it is finished. I'll take Jesus on that one. It's finished. The work is done. So guess what? That means you don't have to add to it. You don't get to add to it. What we do, man, what we do is the same thing that Adam and Eve did. The very first thing they do when they sin is they try to cover themselves up. They get some crummy old vines and leaves and try to piecemeal some outfit together to cover themselves up. Do you know what God does the last thing he does for them before he sends them out of the garden? He covers them up with animal skins to care for them. And it's pointing all the way forward to what the Passover lamb is going to do for us and for what the lamb of God is going to do for us. He covers you. He covers you so that you don't have to fear the coming wrath. And no amount of your righteousness, no amount of your good works, no amount of your kindness, no amount of the money that you make, the security that you earn, none of that is going to make you right and safe because he's already done it for you. So don't deface the sacrifice that he's made by drawing your own mustache on it, right? Man, I do that all the time. Maybe God will love me if I do this a little bit more, if I think this way, or if I start praying more, or read my Bible more, whatever it is. That is, don't add to it. We don't do those things to earn his love. We do it because we have it. Because he has covered you. The good news of the Bible is that we cannot cover ourselves against the wrath we deserve. So Jesus, he makes himself our covering at the cost of his life. And that is enough. Enough is enough. And he doesn't leave the rescue up to you because he loves you too much to do that. He accomplishes it and finishes it for you. And he offers you, he offers each one of us, that covering by grace through faith because he loves you. Because he loves you. I mean, this story in Exodus 12, it's a resurrection story. Because everywhere, everywhere in Egypt this night, someone dies. And every house in Egypt is turned into a tomb. But Israel comes out. They walk out of the tomb to new life, freedom. And if you are in Christ this morning, the same is true for you. You are free. You are free from the slavery of sin that has entangled us. You are free from fear. And you know what that freedom is for? Jesus, uh, I'll close with this, but Jesus, when he's in the upper room with his disciples at the Passover feast, Peter, uh, or uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they record uh, the Passover meal. But John doesn't ever record the institution of the Lord's Supper. Instead, we get like the director's cut. You know when you can watch a DVD and the director cut happens and they kind of tell you what was happening in this scene? We get the director cut in John 
in the upper room discourse because John 13 through 17, they're at the meal and we just get to hear what they were talking about. And what Jesus tells them in John 15, 12 through 13, he says this, because they've been freed now and washed and clean, this is my commandment that you love one another as I've loved you. Greater love is no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You know what you've been freed for? Church, grace and peace, you know what you've been freed for? You have been freed to now be sacrificial lambs for this world. To lay down your life. To cover people who are in need. You have been freed to care for the poor, the orphan, the widow, the foreigner. To cover them. To love them as Christ has loved you. Not to earn his love, but because you have it. You've been free to die to yourself. And die for the good of the other. And that probably doesn't look like taking a bullet for someone. It might, but it, for me, what dying to myself looks like sometimes is when I come home from a long day of work, having a tea party with my four-year-old for the thousandth time. And it may not be that fun. Is she in here? No, we're good. Um, Die to yourself. Husbands, die for your wives. Roommates, die for your roommate. Die for the good of the other. Because someone has already done it for you. You have it in Christ. Enough is enough. He loves you. So come to him knowing that only he is enough. That nothing else is enough. Nothing else will save. And let him cover you. And then let's go. Free, just as Israel was freed. To live, to serve, to love, to lay down our lives for the good of others and for the good of this world. Let me pray for us. Father, we love you and we thank you that you have made provision so that we might be covered. Not by our righteousness, not by our works, but because of the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Pray for anyone who's here who does not yet know that or believe that, that they might um, consider what this would look like for them to have this kind of freedom and peace. And I pray that you would work in all of our hearts this morning and the rest of this day and this week. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's stand together.